Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good afternoon, beloved family. How are you doing? I pray that you are well. We are well. I'm happy to be with you. And I want you to all pray for our little angel or lovely angel, Brian, because he came uh, 15 minutes ago when our internet was out and he had got it all fixed in time for the program. I don't know what we'd do without him. Um, but we thank God for him. We thank God for you. And we thank God we could be with you live. I'm so thrilled about that. Um, Every once in a while, we'll still need to run an encore if something goes off. Uh, Our internet out here is not the best. We're all the way in the country. Um, But thanks to Brian, we could come to you. So God bless you. And um, many of you may have seen already the second, actually third pastoral letter of Bishop Joseph Strickland. And I, I doubt that there are too many people listening who do not know that He's under threat of being removed from the Vatican uh, for the crime of speaking the truth. That's it. The crime of speaking the truth of the faith, preaching the gospel, doing what he was actually ordained to do as a successor of the apostle is teach the gospel. And that's all that he can be accused of. There's nothing else. He wrote initially um, a letter. Let me see. It was um, in August, August 22nd. And it was uh, in response to the Synod on Synodality because the Synod on Synodality um, promises to be, it's, as uh, let me just say, what's the, what's the word? Um, I want to say crazy, but that's not accurate. Um, uh, as crazy in its results as is the title, Synod on Synodality. Um, it threatens to destroy the church. Uh, the Holy Father has said he wants to totally change the church. Uh, he cannot. He has no power to do that. He didn't invent doctrine. It's from God. Um, as Bishop Strickland has said, he is uh, undermining the deposit of faith. And the gates of hell we know from our Lord will not prevail against his church. He will lead it into all truth till the end of time. Um, are we to obey the Holy Father? Absolutely, when he speaks truth. But when he speaks heresy, we must not obey him. Uh, The church is not his to play with. The sacraments are not his to play with. He is to guard the deposit of faith, not to do with it as he wishes. And so Bishop Strickland, in his August letter, made seven points And he is following through on those seven points, faithful bishop that he is, and writing a complete letter on each point. And the first point was, and that's his first letter, Christ established one church, the Catholic Church, and therefore only the Catholic Church provides the fullness of Christ's truth and the authentic plan of his salvation for all of us. That was the first point. And on his... uh, second letter, um, expanding on these points, he covered that first point. 
The second point, which is the subject of his second letter, is this. The Eucharist and all the sacraments are divinely instituted, not developed by man. The Eucharist is truly Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity. And to receive him in communion unworthily, that is, in a state of grave, unrepentant sin, is a devastating sacrilege for the individual and for the church. And that is the message of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so on that message, um, our dear Bishop Strickland has written the second letter expanding on that. And I don't know that we'll get through that today, but we're going to give it a good try. He wrote it on September 12th um, and says, My dear sons and daughters in Christ. Of course, he's writing to his flock in the Diocese of Tyler, but it's to the flock, it can extend to the flock all over the world and uh, has in great measure. As far as I know, Bishop Strickland is the only bishop doing this in the whole world, the only bishop not just speaking out, um, not complaining or fighting, but speaking as a true successor of the apostles, um, just speaking courageously the truth. You don't have to be too courageous to speak the truth. You have to be perhaps cowardly to not speak the truth. But to speak the truth, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, it'll set you free. Um, so he said this on December, September 12th, My dear sons and daughters in Christ, I write to you today to discuss more fully the second basic truth that I spoke of in my first pastoral letter issued on August 22nd, 2023, quote, um, and I'll repeat what he wrote, The Eucharist and all the sacraments are divinely instituted, not developed by man. The Eucharist is truly Christ's body and blood, soul and divinity, and to receive him in communion unworthily, that is, to be in a state of grave unrepentant sin, is a devastating sacrilege for the individual and for the church. And as I mentioned, that's what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in his first letter to them, chapter 11. He said, when we eat and drink unworthily, we bring condemnation to ourselves, not discerning the body and blood of Christ. Bishop Strickland continues, the sacraments are essential elements of the fullness of life in Christ and are, above all, a divine love story. The sacraments are channels of God's divine grace, which flow from Christ himself, love incarnate among us, and sanctify each of us on our journey towards heaven. They are visible signs of God's love for us. Through worthy reception of the sacraments, God's supernatural grace is brought forth in visible and tangible form, and the work of God's salvation is made manifest in each of us. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, the sacraments are efficacious. That means they are effectual. That means they do what they say they do. Um, The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. Grace, beloved, is the very life of God in our souls. And it is through the sacraments that we receive such grace. Uh, Bishop Strickland continues, the visible rites by which R-I-T-E-S 
The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. That's Catechism number 1131. There are seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, Baptism, Confirmation, Eucharist, reconciliation, otherwise known as confession, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders. The sacraments are not isolated from one another, but instead are woven together in a unity of divine life that reflects and connects us to the mystery of Jesus Christ and his church. The saints and doctors of the church have given us many beautiful reflections to ponder regarding the origin of the sacraments. St. Thomas Aquinas said that from the pierced side of Christ, quote, flowed forth the sacraments of the church without which there is no entrance to the life, which is the true life. That blood was shed for the remission of sins. That water it is that makes up the health-giving cup, end quote from Thomas Aquinas. The Eucharist is at the very center of our sacramental life because the Eucharist is the real presence of Christ himself. I tell you, beloved, it took me 18 years between my coming to believe by the unfathomable grace of God that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who I grew up in my Jewish background, not even being able to say the word God, we said G-D, we didn't write God because... We didn't pronounce the vowels, and the original Hebrew has no vowels because God's name is too holy. So not only could we not pronounce the name, but we knew from Old Testament scriptures that no one could even look on God and live. And it is that God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that took flesh through the Virgin Mary and became man for us, for us men in our salvation. And the night that struck me, I said, no, a man can't be God. A man can't be God. But I realized that miraculous night that I was right. A man cannot be God. But if God exists, he can become a man. He who created all that is can do whatever he wants. And I gave my life to him. And it was 18 years later that I came to believe again by the unfathomable grace of God that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became man for us, went a further step of unimaginable condescension and became our food and said, whoever eats me, eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has life in him. There's no other way. John chapter 6, it's not symbolic. My Protestant pastor used to say, um, if God wanted us to eat his flesh and blood, it would be cannibalism. But the fact is, um, he is the final lamb of God. It's not cannibalism. Um, And why would God symbolize cannibalism? That wouldn't make sense at all. Um, Bishop Strickland says, I hear the music for our break. He says, it is my intent in this letter to speak mainly of the Eucharist and the importance of not receiving our Lord in communion unworthily. I will discuss the remaining sacraments in more detail in future pastoral letters. We'll be right back after the break, dear ones, and uh, read as much of this as we can, and then we'll have our half hour together. We'll be right back. 
Hello, this is Father Jim Netto of the Diocese of Portland, Maine. In Krakow, Poland on the 2nd of June, 1938, the Lord Jesus himself directed a young Polish Sister of Mercy on a three-day retreat. Sister Faustina painstakingly recorded Christ's instructions in her diary, that is, a mystical manual on prayer and divine mercy. These instructions became Faustina's weapon in fighting the good fight. Jesus began, My daughter, I want to teach you about spiritual warfare. Secret number 22. Always depend upon your superiors, even in the smallest things. In this secret, Jesus is once again instructing a religious. But we all have the Lord as our superior. Dependence upon God is a weapon of spiritual warfare because we cannot win on our own. Christ came to defeat death and evil. So let us listen to the Lord, our superior, and resist even the small temptations. Victories over great temptations are critical to our spiritual progress. However, great temptations are very rare. So victories over less temptations are just as important because they are so many to be conquered. The number of little temptations is so much more considerable in our lives that a victory over them is just as important as a victory over the ones that are greater but more rare. For example, it is easy to abstain from murder, but it is difficult to avoid the angry outbursts that are often aroused within us. It is easy to avoid adultery, but it is not so easy to be holy and constantly pure in words, looks, thoughts, and deeds. Lord God, lesser temptations surround us daily, and we often find them more difficult to resist. Give us the grace in the midst of these temptations to be wise, to recognize them, and firmly to overcome them. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I'm so, so thrilled to be with you and equally thrilled to be reading the second pastoral letter um, of Bishop Strickland, in which he uh, has is delineating and expanding on the second point of his August letter, in which he made seven points to counter the um, potential misinformation and misteaching of the current synod on syn- synodality, which synodality, which I think we're going to have the results of next month. So in his second point, it's focused on the Eucharist. Um, Where did I put that letter? Here it is. And he says this, Bishop Strickland says, simply put, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Body and blood, soul and divinity. Um, We are body, blood, and soul. We're not divinity, but God is. It's the whole Christ. To say body, blood, soul, and divinity is to speak of the man God, the God who became man, who took on flesh, and who took on two natures, human and divine, in one person. The Eucharist is his real presence among us. 
when we consume the Eucharist, we are incorporated, we are incorporated into Christ in a supernatural way. And we are also bound to all others who are the body of Christ, who are of rather. Together we are members, Paul says. One's a toe, one's a liver, whatever it is. We are members of his body. He is our head. It's not metaphorical, as I was taught as an evangelical. We are truly, truly his body. And when we receive him, we are incorporated into Christ. I want to give you an example when I was on my way to the church that I learned from Bishop Fulton Sheen. He said, when cows eat the grass, the grass becomes the cow. In other words, the grass is incorporated into um, the greater of the two. Uh, The cow is greater than the grass, and the grass becomes the cow. The cow doesn't become grass. So the cow consumes the grass, and the grass is changed into the cow. When we eat the cow, beef, the cow is transformed into us. We don't become a cow. But what we eat of the cow is uh, assimilated into our body and becomes us. When we receive Christ... We, the lower form of life, are transformed into him, the higher form of life. We, Christ doesn't become us. We become Christ. It's huge, beloved. Someone once said of regular food, we are what we eat. In the case of the Eucharist, that's 100% true. Bishop Strickland says, Holy Communion is an intimate encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Amen, Amen, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life with you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, unlike your ancestors who ate and still died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the whole of John chapter 6 is a discourse on the bread of life. And when John 6 begins, at the end of John 5, uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, and they loved it. And so they followed him. They said, this is terrific free food. And he sat them all down and he said, don't go after the food that perishes, but the food from heaven, the food my, mother, my father will give you. And they said, well, you know, are you greater than Moses who gave us manna? And he said, it wasn't Moses. It was your father in heaven. And I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And Protestants and Catholics and others disagree. They think it's all symbolic speaking. I'm the bread. I'm the food of life. It doesn't have to be real food. But when we get to the second half of John chapter 6, which we just read, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Um, uh, My flesh is food indeed. My blood is drink indeed. The language changes, and this is acknowledged by Protestant scholars, to the language of eating and chewing and munching, not just consuming but truly chewing and munching. 
It's very, very little literal, which is why the disciples walked away, because he was negating everything Leviticus, the old law, said. The old law said you're not to eat the flesh of an animal or drink its blood. But Jesus said in the old law, though he didn't allow it because he was preparing them for him being the Lamb of God, and he said to them in Leviticus chapter 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins because it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. They weren't ready to do that yet. It had to all point, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ, who is the true bed, who is the Lamb of God, to which every old lamb pointed. Bishop Strickland continues, One of the countless stories from the history of the Church provides a beautiful message of the power of the Eucharist. St. Damien of Molokai, a Belgian priest in the mid-19th century, was said to the missionary fields of Hawaii, where he would spend his life in the care and service of those who were afflicted with leprosy. For many years, St. Damien loved and took care of the leper colony single-handedly, tending to the physical and spiritual needs of all in the community. One might wonder what could have given him the spiritual strength for such a difficult and heart-wrenching mission a mission that ended with his contracting and dying from the disease himself. St. Damien gives us the answer. He said it was the Eucharist. St. Damien wrote, quote, were it not for the constant presence of our divine master in our humble chapel, I would not have found it possible to persevere in sharing the lot of the afflicted of Molokai. The Eucharist is the bread that gives strength. It is at once the most eloquent proof of his love and the most powerful means of fostering his love in us. He gives himself every day so that our hearts as burning coals may set afire the hearts of the faithful, End quote. The Eucharist was St. Damien's spiritual strength and the Lord wants it to be our strength as well. Living a sacramental life as members of the Catholic Church, the mystical body of Christ, hinges on belief in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. From the very beginning of the Church until today, saints and martyrs have lived and died for their belief in the real presence. Kings and commoners have knelt side by side in their belief in the real presence, and countless Eucharistic miracles throughout the world continue to testify to our Lord's real presence in the Eucharist. Throughout the ages, the Church came to a deeper and more profound understanding of this sacred mystery, which we now know as the dogma of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is the word the Church uses to describe the change that takes place at each Mass When the priest pronounces the words of consecration, this is my body, this is my blood. When these sacred words are spoken by the priest, the substance of the bread and wine are transformed by our Lord into his body and blood. And only the appearances, 
that is, the physical properties of bread and wine remain. St. Augustine said that at the Last Supper, when Jesus picked up unleavened bread, matzah, from the Passover Seder, he picked up the matzah cracker, wheat and water only, and he held it and he said, this is my body. And bread obeyed and became his body. And then he picked up the chalice with the wine, four cups at the Passover, and said, this is my blood, and wine became blood. Our Lord at the beginning of creation said, let there be light, and there was. He creates by his word. St. Augustine said, our Lord held himself in his own hand. And how is it that when the priest says, this is my body, it become a priest, a human being, a fallen, sinful human being, though a priest of Christ, an altus Christus, altus Christus, another Christ at the altar. How is it? It is because, as one beautiful Monsignor said to me, if our eyes could see what our faith understands, we would not see the priest because he, he doesn't exist at that point for all intents and purposes. We physically see him. But it is Christ the high priest, and Christ is the victim. And it is Christ the high priest saying, through the instrument of the human priest, this is my body. Just as he said it at the Last Supper, it is the high priest who says this, the wafer of wheat and water held by the human priest, Christ says over that, this is my body. And as at the Last Supper, the wafer obeys and becomes his body. And the same with the chalice. And it's similar in confession, beloved. It is Christ who forgives sins, but he chooses to forgive sins through his priest. And Protestants, uh, as I was a Protestant, 18, I don't need a priest. I don't need to confess my sins to a man. Well, that's a partial truth. I confess my sins to God when I go into that confessional. And I understand that God has ordained the priesthood through whom he comes to us. When I tell my sins in that confessional, I try as much as I can to block out the priest on the other side. And I tell them to God. And that way there's no fear holding me back. No, what's he going to think of me? No, no. I tell them to God. And when the priest says, I absolve you, just like at the Mass, it's Christ who says that through the priest. The priest that helped me into the church, who taught me these things, said that the priest does his most important work when he's not himself. And that's in the consecration of the Eucharist, because it's Christ who says, this is my body, and in the confessional, it is Christ who says, through the priest, I absolve you. God forgives sins. Well, why does he have to forgive him through a man, through a human being, through a priest? And as one uh, Catholic scholar once said, who are you, O man, to tell God, yes, he forgives us, but who are we to tell him how he wants to forgive us? The priesthood is, is his design from the Old Testament right through to the New. Um, there is, beloved, uh, the music for our second break. And... Uh, James, is it our second break? It is. It seems so early. Maybe I'm off. I don't know. But that is our second break, dear ones. So when we come back from the break, 
we'll have our half hour together, my favorite time, and you'll be able to call in or email with anything whatsoever on your heart. This is Franciscan Media's Saint of the Day for September 18th. Today we celebrate St. Joseph of Cupertino. He has been called the Flying Friar, but the fact that Joseph of Cupertino could levitate or float in the air during prayer wasn't the most remarkable thing about him. The depth of his holiness was. He entered the conventual Franciscans, and though challenged by his studies, he persisted and was ordained in 1628. Joseph's tendencies to levitate during prayer became something of a cross. Some people came to observe him much as they might go to a circus sideshow, but Joseph's unusual gift led him to be humble, patient, and obedient, though at times he was greatly tempted and felt forsaken by God. His fellow Franciscans transferred Joseph several times for his own good and for the good of the rest of the community. He spent some years in out-of-the-way friaries, reported to and investigated by the Inquisition. Eventually, he was exonerated. Immediately after his death in 1663, miracles were reported at his tomb. Joseph of Cupertino was canonized 100 years later. There's more about the saints along with inspiration and Catholic resources at our website, saintoftheday.org. From Franciscan Media, this has been Saint of the Day. The Station of the Cross has many ways to keep you informed about our programming. You can view the highlights of our primetime programming schedule or the full 24-7 programming grid at both thestationofthecross.com or the free iCatholic Radio app. Just search under the Programming tab. Our website also offers a printable version for your convenience. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our half hour together, and I love it. Our lines are wide open, and you're welcome to call in with anything whatsoever on your heart. Um, And again, it doesn't have to be our subject. The heart of the matter is the matter of your heart. And the toll-free number is 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We have an email from Matthew. Matthew writes, Dear Mother Miriam, I'm concerned for my family members. We are all cradle Catholics, but two have completely fallen away. Two practice as indifferent Protestants, and my wife has not stepped aside of a Catholic... My wife hasn't stepped inside of a Catholic church aside from a wedding or funeral. Oh, Matthew, I'm so sorry. He writes, I was thinking of sending a letter to each of my immediate family members telling them that I do not want anything for Christmas or my birthday six weeks after Christmas except for them to return to the church, go back to confession and weekly mass. I feel that they need to know how the way they live their lives is gravely detrimental to their soul's salvation. Do you think that this is acceptable? God bless you, Matthew. 
Matthew, I do not think you will gain anything by asking them for Christmas and birthday gifts for their coming back to the church because they don't believe it. They don't believe it. They're not going to do that for you. They have to do it for their own souls and they have to believe. What I would do, perhaps, is get a book for them. There is a book published by, I think, a combination of St. Joseph Productions and Ignatius Press. And it has to do with returning home. These are um, uh, fallen away Catholics who have come back home. I don't know the title, but it won't be fine, hard to find. You can either, I think, look up catholic.com in their shop and you'll find it. Uh, returning Catholics or home again or something like that. Stories of Catholics who left the church and have come home. It's a wonderful book. And people leave the church for all kinds of reasons. Either they were never truly taught the faith, or they were taught the faith and it was left to the church and schools. It was never really lived at home, so it seemed hypocritical. Maybe their parents didn't do what they taught the children to do. Um, maybe grace didn't operate in their hearts. Who knows? I, everyone is so different. But I would get a hold of that book, of those who have left the church and come back. Um, and when they left the church, they really didn't know what the church was, and they came back because they found out what it truly was. I would get that book uh, for every member of your family, um, your immediate family and whoever else. And I would say to them, I would give it to them as a Christmas gift um, and make sure they get it a week or so before Christmas. Send it to them as your gift and say that I... Um, I would wish, or a month before, whatever you think, and say, dear, dear family, I have a desire for you to get, give me the most important Christmas gift and birthday gift you can. And that would be to read this book and tell me what you think of it. And you can give it back. You don't have to keep it if you don't want. But read this book through. It's story, so one at a time, however, no, no uh, rush. This is the gift I'm asking you, to read this book through. Let me know when you've read it, and tell me some things you think, if you wish. Um, that would be your Christmas and birthday gift to me. That would Now, I can't, I have no idea what you'll think or believe as a result of that. It's not up to me to change hearts. Uh, it's totally between you and God. But this will be a great gift to me if you would simply read this book. That'll be all the Christmas and birthday gift I need. Matthew, that's what I would do. This way, you are um, uh, asking them to not not give you a gift. That's, that's not good. We need to be able to receive. But you're asking them to give you a gift that you really want from your heart. And, um, and, and just leave it with God and be praying for them. We have an email from Trevor. Trevor says, Hello, Mother. Can you walk us through what an average day looks like for you now that you've settled in your new property? Well, Trevor, it's not much different than it has been because we follow the rule of St. Benedict. Um, we're not settled. We're only half unpacked, by the way. And we just realized that um, we have a little, uh, what used to be a lodge, and uh, it has eight rooms, 
and we have them, uh, seven of them filled at the moment. Uh, we don't even have room for come and seize or all of that. We can build another eight on the other side, but we want 30 sisters. And to restructure that whole building so that it's 30 sisters would take almost as much as it would take to build a new building. Plus, the chapel we have, we can squeeze 28 people in, but we want 30 plus a retreatants and families to be able to come. Certainly when sisters enter the novitiate, or rather when they take temporary vows, the bishop comes, as he did a week ago Friday, to uh, receive the temporary vows of one of our sisters. The final vows will be done at the church, the chapel with the bishop, but uh, we want to have room for parents of the sisters, all of that. So we've just concluded the only way to do this and have it really a function for the future is to keep everything we have, but what we need is a new chapel that's sizable, and we need um, cells, a cloister that's going to take a minimum of 30 sisters. So um, we are making plans now on our 86 acres to uh, begin to design that. A church with a chapel and a, a chapter room for us, which is where we have conferences and um, 30 rooms, and it'll need showers and toilets and, and um, laundry. And that's what, and our big building that we're in now will house every single thing else. And um, so we're not quite settled. Um, and uh, we raised so much money to be able to purchase this property, and we don't owe a penny. So I don't know what God's will be for the new one. Uh, I don't know how much we'll need. But that's, that's, we have a beautiful architect uh, beginning to design it for us. So God's will, God's will. But even now, um, we, we are very limited in the women we can take and, and those that come on retreat. So we, if we build all that, we want to make the cells a priority even before the church because we have a small chapel now that we put together. That was a big answer to you, Trevor. But the answer you want is that we begin at 5 in the morning. We get up at 430 and we pray at five. We pray matins and lords and the Angelus and prime. And that takes um, uh, from five to 6.30. Um, no, five till a quarter to seven. And then we have 15 minutes and we leave for mass at seven. And mass is at eight. We're a good 40 minutes away from the parish where we are now uh, until maybe one day we could have visiting priests come and celebrate the mass here. Um, what else? And then we the, the, we have an hour study at the church after mass every day. We study our rule of Saint Benedict and the catechism, um, and an exercise I've put together for the sisters. Um, and then we come home. We have breakfast at eleven for the first time, and uh, we clean up and we pray at noon. The three little hours we pray uh, tears, sext, and known with the Angelus at noon. That takes a little while. Um, and then we have from 12.30 to uh, 3 for three hours of work. And that's when unpacking and cleaning and construction and everything is done in those three hours. Um, and then from 3 to 4, the sisters have a rest hour to do personal chores or sleep or walk or whatever they wish. And from 4 to 5.30, we have a holy hour and a half every day. And we begin the holy hour with a half hour of meditation. And then we pray Vespers. 
and we have a different devotional for each day of the week, and then um, and then we pray the rosary every single day in Latin, um, and following that, um, we have dinner. So we basically have two meals a day: a, a little breakfast at eleven, and a dinner at about six, and then we clean up after dinner and have about a half hour for community time. We'll do reading or or um, discuss the faith or look at mail that's come in once a week. We'll play games, uh, all kinds of things. And then we pray Compline at 8. That's night prayer. And we go to our cells at 8.30 and lights are out at 10. So from after Compline until uh, from Compline till after breakfast the next morning, which is close to noon, there's no talking at all. It's grand silence. So you have a full description of our day now, Trevor. God bless you. And um, if you ever come by, you feel free to visit us at our new property. Um, we have Elizabeth on the phone from Michigan. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Mother. How are you? Well, I'm wonderful. How about yourself? Doing well. Um, I found you recently um, and have listened to almost every podcast. So I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you live. Um, I grew up, um, Novus Ordo and, um, my husband and I have since found the traditional Latin community. Um, here in Michigan, we have a, um, diocesan, uh, parish with a very strong priest, um, who is, you know, uh, willing to stand up for what's right, which is very relieving. But my husband and I, yes, um, we have been discerning a move because his job no longer um, requires us to be where we live. Um, mm-hmm. However, upon praying on this decision, it, it feels like we can't, we, we haven't gotten a clear sign um, on what to do. And we don't know if that's God's way of saying to stay put or if it's one of those things where you just kind of um, kind of go with it. We uh, actually, we would look at Tyler, Texas um, for the community there um and yeah we just we feel like we keep praying about it and being a few years now we just don't know um quite what to do next if we don't feel we have a clear sign okay um you don't necessarily need a sign a physical or visible sign but you need a confirmation in your hearts um that it's god's will Uh, looking at tyler of course is terrific we've had over 400 families come here I don't know if it's the last year or a couple of years, um, but um, for for because it's such a beautiful Catholic community and because it's under such a holy shepherd like Bishop Strickland, if they remove him, we don't know what'll what'll happen. But um, it's a beautiful, beautiful Catholic community. Absolutely. Um, um, in fact, I'll just mention this, uh, adjacent to our land, butting up against it, there's just a, a road. So on one side of the road, to the south of the road, we have 86 acres to the north of the road, and just the little road divides it, um, are 92 acres that the owners are going to sell. And they're selling it, um, I don't remember the price per acre, it'll, it'll be a lower price because it's so many acres, um, and they will give um, uh, owner financing for 20% down. So I mentioned that 
in case anybody wants to come, uh, they're selling a number of plots of land. We're right in the middle of it. If you picture a little city, we have 86 acres right in the middle. So whoever buys around us, we can build a Catholic community. Um, and um, if anyone is interested in that, let me know, and I'll put you in touch with the realtor who is the best realtor in the world. So um, uh, why am I telling you all this? Oh, because the land does not yet have electric and water. We have a well on our property, and it services the whole 86 acres, and people out here need wells. So if you buy land, you're going to need to bring the electric lines in and well and a well. So that's that'll be costly for you, but... Um, I'll mention that. And then, oh, Elizabeth, I'm talking too much. There's the music for our final break. Can you hang on till after the break? Yes, of course. Okay, do that. And we'll come right back after the break, beloved. We'll have about 10 minutes, which will be enough time for another phone call um, or for you to email in. Toll-free to- phone is one 511 5483 or email at mother at and we'll be right back. Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam, host of Mother Miriam Live. Like the Catholic Current and the many other programs that originate from the Station of the Cross, Divine Mercy in My Soul is all about the messages that Jesus revealed to St. Faustina. It is aired every Sunday morning at 11 Eastern and Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Or you can listen anytime to Divine Mercy in My Soul on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Please join us in a prayer to our guardian angel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O Holy Guardian Angel, take care of our soul and body. Enlighten our mind that we may know the Lord better and love Him with all our heart. Help us in our prayers so that we may not give in to distractions. Assist us with your advice so that we may see the good and carry it out with generosity. Defend us from the insidious snares of the enemy and sustain us in temptations that we may always be victorious. Remedy our coldness in our worship of the Lord. Cease not to protect us until you have brought us into paradise where we will praise our good God together for all eternity. Amen. Hear a powerful sermon you need to share with a loved one? Maybe there's a guest, prayer, or teaching segment that deserves another listen. You can listen to any of our network-produced programs at your convenience by finding us wherever you enjoy podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and the free iCatholic Radio app. Be uplifted in your faith. Listen today at thestationofthecross.com or on your favorite podcasting platform. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment, and we have 10 minutes. Again, enough time for your phone call if you wish to call in, 
or for your emails. And we're on the line with Elizabeth from Michigan, who um, is uh, trying to discern with her family uh, where they might move from Michigan to find a good Catholic community and how they'll know it's God's will. Are you still there, Elizabeth? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Well, during the break, I looked up patron saint of moving to a new location. And do you know who it is? I do not. Neither did I. It's St. Anne, of all people. Um, I'll read this to you. For many centuries, tradition held that angels miraculously carried the Holy House from Nazareth to Loretto. Throughout the Italian Basilica, on numerous artistic depictions of angels flying over the seas with the house. No wonder, then, that St. Anne is the patroness of relocations. Several websites say that. So I would do, do you have children at home? I do. I have a four, three, two, and one-year-old. <laughs> oh, how gorgeous is that? Well, do a novena, your whole family together, a nine-day novena to St. Anne, and just look up novenas to St. Anne's on the Internet, and pick one you love, and when it comes to mentioning your intention, just say, St. Anne, we wish to know if and where our Lord would have us move so that we could be in a good Catholic community, a good place to raise our children, and have, uh, have a, a, a confirmation in our hearts that we're in God's will. I will do That's that. What Thank I would you do. so much, you, you're welcome, sweetheart. And again, you don't need signs. God could send signs if he wants. But um, the main thing is uh, God's confirmation to our heart. And if there's a great doubt or you have a little sense of dread or something, just don't do it. When in doubt, don't. And let God lead you. Okay. And I, sorry, I have to ask you, um, I was telling my dad, I mentioned, I mentioned you to my dad the other day, and he said, oh, I think your grandmother knew her. Um, I don't know if she just, he meant she just knew of you or knew you personally, um, and she's now passed, but her name was Betty Bullduck. Did you know her? Not by name, but we could have met at a conference. It, he said maybe from a prayer group when you, in California, that's where she, um, oh. she lived, but... Well, I was Catholic in California. I was on staff Catholic Answers for nine years. I was in California quite a long time. So that's very possible. But I, Betty, do you know where she lived? Um, She lived in Fullerton, California. All right. Well, I was in Placentia, Orange County, not far. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know by name, but it's possible that I would recognize her face. Okay. Well, thank you so much, okay. Mother. Thanks, Elizabeth. God bless you, dear. We have an email from Stephen who says, Hello, Mother Miriam. I'm a 19-year-old single male who is currently discerning the priesthood. I'm very conflicted, as I am more traditionally minded, because I see countless faithful priests and bishops constantly facing persecution from inside the church. What would the point be in my joining the priesthood? if I'll just end up like others, such as Bishop Strickland, who has done tremendous goods for the church to seemingly no avail in the eyes of his superiors. Should I overlook this and pursue my vocation anyways? I've really been struggling with this, but I'm sure other people feel the same. Do you think this has anything to do with why vocations for the priesthood are down in number? Well, 
Uh, Stephen, it may have to do with why vocations to the priesthood are down in number, but I would say they weren't true vocations. Because vocation is a calling from God. And if one has a calling from God, nothing this side of heaven should stop, no matter what. Even if you're going to face death. If it's God's vocation, you don't enter the, the priesthood based on what happens in the church or with other priests. Um, you say a Bishop Strickland, who's done tremendous goods for the church to seemingly no avail in the eyes of his superiors. He could care less. We don't do things for the approval of men. Bishop Strickland is living at his vocation as a shepherd of the sheep, not to get accolades from the Holy Father or anybody else. So, Stephen, if you're hesitating because of the situation in the church of becoming a priest, you say joining the priesthood, it's not a club. If you're hesitating on becoming a priest, I would say God has not called you to the priesthood. There are too many considerations in the way. But if you believe God is calling you to the priesthood and you're willing to give your life for the sheep as Christ did, then I would say to pursue it. And you might pursue it through a very traditional, wonderful religious order rather than a diocesan situation. And you could go to uh, the Fraternity of Society of St. Peter, um, the Institute of Christ, the King's Sovereign Priests, good, holy religious orders that are traditional. We have an email from Janet who says, I have a question about the Hour of Grace devotion. I desperately want to do this. It is a beautiful devotion that I've never heard of. If I cannot do this at one, should I still do it at another hour of the day? Um, hold on now. I have something here. The hour devotion, I just learned of it two years ago myself. And it's an hour of grace that Our Lady gave on December 8th. It's one hour of grace on December 8th from noon to 1 p.m. That's it. And I don't imagine it could be done at any other time. The request of our Heavenly Mother for the hour of grace is first, to be started from 12 noon until 1 p.m., one full hour of prayer. Secondly, during this hour, the person making the hour of grace, either at home or in the church, must put away all distractions. Number three, Begin the hour of grace by praying three times the 50, 51st Psalm with outstretched arms. Number four, the rest of the hour of grace may be spent in silent communication with God, adoring the sacred host, meditating upon the passion of Jesus, saying the Holy Rosary, praising God in your own way, or by using favorite prayers, singing hymns, etc., and the history of this is that during the period of November 24th, 1946 to December 8th, 1947, the Blessed Mother appeared to Sister Piorina in a little church in Montechiari, Italy, 11 times. And you can look this up uh, on the origins of the Hour of Grace, so I won't go through it now, but um, I would say it's one hour of grace where Our Lady... Uh, intends to shower us with great graces if we follow those instructions. And I would not say it could be done any other time. If you do it another time, it's prayer and it's wonderful. And I think Our Lady, Our Lord will, um, I think, reward you with grace, but it will not be the hour of grace. 
uh, as uh, that that he's given. Um, okay, let me see. Um, we have an email from Liam who says, "Hi, mother, just love you. Ever heard of the purple scapular? What are your thoughts?" Um, I did not, but uh, here I have. Um, from the Mary Foundation, the mother of God and her son Jesus gave the purple scapular to the approved Catholic mystic Marie Julie, uh, Marie Julie Jaheni to protect your family from the worst possible natural disasters and supernatural dangers. Jaheni foretold, along with other approved Catholic visionaries, that a worldwide judgment in miniature, known as the warning, is coming to the entire world. Um, followed by great chastisements. So look at the Mary Foundation at CatholicCity.com uh, on the purple scapular. Uh, Marie Julie Jehenny was a, a tremendous prophet, and she is approved by the church. So I would not uh, be concerned about that, um, and it'll give you more information. God bless you, beloved. Wonderful to be with you, and God willing, we'll be with you tomorrow. God bless you.